good pass. Looking for Walker in the corner there, as it's caught by Joe Walker for a blue hand touchdown. As he aims for Joe Walker again, deep pass, and it's caught by Joe Walker. Time came the push, and he's able to get it in for a blue head touchdown. Kehoe with the fake, looking to pass deep to Joe Walker. As it's caught up the sideline, and he barely goes out of bounds. Fake to Dejon Lee, looking to pass deep to Scarf, and he is open on a post route. Blue Heads with the win at home. Two games in a row, pick up a two-game win streak. Final score, 27-10. to Hello and welcome to the Delaware Football Roundup by WVUD Sports. I'm Brandon Hovac. Today joined by Nick Canella. To break down Delaware's 27-10 victory over Cornell that moved the Blue Hens to 2-1 on the season. Doing this Saturday night, Nick, right after the game, true post-game pod fashion, on the heels of a big Blue Hens victory that now launches them to their first winning record of the 2018 season. Literally sprinted here from the stadium. (laughs) (laughs) All the equipment on my back. I'm like, I can't let Brandon down. Gotta record this podcast immediately. This this is my little my little child, if you will, the Delaware Football Roundup. So I'm glad to have you on it, Nick. Your first post game pod with me. And we got a good one to break down here between the Blue Hens and the Big Red. Uh, logical place to start. You have to start with Joe Walker. I think this will go down as the Joe Walker game. He comes out here, six catches, 154 receiving yards, and a touchdown. He had three plays that were really big ones: a 39 yarder a 41-yarder, and a 42-yarder down the field that led to Blue Hen scores. What can you say about Joe Walker's performance tonight? I mean, being there live, it was amazing to watch. It was like watching the Kansas City Chiefs and Tyreek Hill just beating whatever man was covering him. Just the speed Joe Walker has, the athletic ability, he got back behind the cornerbacks and was able to get haul-in passes, especially the one to the end zone to where we saw, like in Rhode Island, in the back corner, just being able to come down with one foot, getting over the guys. I mean, six receptions, 140, 154 yards, one touchdown, longest catch, 42 yards. I mean, I, th- I would say his second longest one had to have been like 30 40, 41. yards. 41. He had a 41 yeah, and a 39. It was, it, it was incredible. Um, but it, 10 targets. He's becoming a consistent favorite for Kehoe. And heading into the preseason, we were all just like, where is Walker going to fit? We know he's athletic. How is he going to do switching from quarterback to receiver? Now with Jarman there, will Jarman help him out? But now we're seeing nothing of Jarman, and it's all the Joe Walker show. I want to go back to something that you started with, comparing him in a sense to Tyreek Hill. Obviously, he's not you know nearly the player that he yeah. is. But it's funny that you said that because I was on the sidelines briefly with Ahmed Quadri and Eric Allen, some of our other WVD broadcasters, and that's a name that came up in discussions. Not that you know he's going to run a four three forty, but that compared to the competition, Joe Walker is faster, quicker, more explosive than most of the guys lining up on the other side. And you see it today, even a few times that he doesn't catch the ball. Some of those the four targets that were in completions, he's close to or by guys and giving opportunities down the field for Pat Kehoe to start laying it out. And the Blue Hens really starting to open up the offense in these last two weeks against Lafayette, and then today against Cornell, and like you said, Joe Walker is clearly the number one guy at wide receiver. Ten targets today, six catches. Jamie Jarman, who last year was the Blue Hens' leading receiver, just one catch today for 14 yards. He was targeted six times, but they haven't been able to get Jarman and Kehoe on the same page. It's been Walker that's been the guy for him. And Jarman, like you said, they tried to get him going on multiple slant routes, try to give him a quick 
short play. But uh, screen one time. Screen I think. one time. And but then it would turn it on to ground. thrown into the ground, Jarman bobbling it, um, or just complete miss altogether. But they did give him a couple sweeps um, to get him going, to just get him into some of the action to get the speed to the outside. Yeah. But Walker was hands Walker's down the guy. The guy. Papali, second receiver on the team, two catches, 33 yards. Not quite as big a game as we saw last week against Lafayette, but he was out there a lot. It seemed like they went to more three wide receiver personnel as they passed the ball, had more success in the passing game than the running game. And then Charles Scarf gets two more catches for 31 yards. Another guy who has maybe established himself as one of the favorites of Kehoe through these first three weeks. He's got more catches and receiving yards through three games than he had all of last season. Yeah, a tight end is a quarterback's best friend, and Kehoe, someone who's inexperienced, has really held on to that. I mean, Scarf, two touchdowns from Rhode Island plus Lafayette. Coming into this one, I was like, this man's going to get another touchdown. Let's keep it going. Ride the (laughs) three-game streak, but... uh, He's still involved heavily in this offense. You'll see him even go for post routes, um, even in bunch formations to where he'll Yeah, they ran them. that a lot today. They ran that a, quite a lot. More than we've seen. Yeah, I was surprised by that. But um, Scarf is on the field for a large percentage of snaps, which Absolutely. compared to last year, especially with like all the wide receiver sets and just even the running back formations, it's good to see him out there. So the passing game has another big performance, 254 yards through the air for the Blue Hens. Joe Walker becomes the first Blue Hen in Delaware history to have games in his career with 200 passing yards, 100 rushing yards, 100 receiving yards, different games obviously, but he's done that now throughout his career, the first Blue Hen to ever reach those numbers. And it's a second straight game for Pat Kehoe, up well over 200 yards, 279 passing yards against Lafayette, 254 in this game against Cornell. We have not seen those back-to-back type of performances in terms of passing yards from a Blue Hens passer in years, probably since Trent Hurley in 2014. Pat has really gotten off to a great start, but then also has this pocket presence for someone who is inexperienced. He's able to step up into the pocket or figure out, hey, I'm getting pressure, scramble, roll out right, roll out left, wherever it may be, and he's able to stay on his feet. Most people don't think he's a runner, but he's able to now, and we've seen that demonstrated multiple times throughout these games, and he's just done an incredible job not turning the ball over. No turnovers yet. Seven passing touchdowns, zero interceptions. Has been a total problem, especially during, during the Joe Walker era, Kehoe is maintaining drives, which is good. They do get off to a slow start yeah, in the first couple start. drive. Mm-hmm. But once he gets comfortable, I think it's him reading the defenses, and I think it's the coaches making the adjustments. And then Kehoe really gets into it and throws over 200 yards once again. What did you think of the couple of times they called the read option and let Kehoe run it a little bit? Eight carries in this one, 23 yards. He had a five-yard touchdown run as well. Loved it, especially on the touchdown. I, <laughs> I thought... Kenai Kane was going to get it, the handoff to the outside, because it was working all game. And then Kehoe just kept it and just kept churning and running. And he he's a big boy. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's a big dude. And if you get in those situations, defenses have to watch out. And I think it's just another threat and just another advantage for this Blue Hens offense going forward. And he doesn't slide or run out of bounds. When no. he runs up the field, he's taking contact. He's falling forward. But we, I did see him slide one time throughout this game. And it was a good move because there was a linebacker coming up to him. And I was wondering, I was like, we haven't seen him slid yet. 
what is he going to do? Right. And he was able to make the right decision and just go for the slide. So Kehoe, 14 of 29, 254 through the air, 133.2 passer rating. He continues to be one of the best guys in the CIA so far. Came into this game fourth in terms of passing yards per game for CAA passers. You mentioned the slow start a couple seconds ago. They did get off to that. 7-3 to three was the score after the first quarter. They only scored 14 points as a team in the first half, leading 14-3 to three at halftime. I think it was their first two or three drives were three and outs. And I think part of that's the running game, which for the first time this season struggled a little bit. 3.9 rushing yards per attempt. Kanai Kane has 18 attempts, just 65 yards. He averaged 3.6. And we only saw a little bit of Dejon Lee after he had a big week last week. He gets just four carries for 17 yards. As a team, they still get to 137 rushing yards, so it wasn't a failed day. But what did you see from the running game early on, and is there anything that you can pinpoint for why they struggled or you know, it's just kind of one of those days where there was more success through the air. Doug and I discussed it throughout the game, actually, because we were curious ourselves, um, especially Kanai King going up the middle. I think it was the offensive line. They were just outmatched in the trenches from that defensive line. I think they weren't getting enough push, especially on the inside carries. But once the coaches made adjustments after the couple series they had, they were able to get everything to the outside. And we saw Dejan Lee break a couple to the outside. Yeah, Kanai came coming to the outside. I think once they were able to make those adjustments, it was golden. But for the slow starts in total, I just, I don't know. I think it's just, I don't know. That's a good question. It's something that they'll have to address and think about too because in a game against Cornell, you know, you get things going second quarter, second half, and you're okay. But as we will in a little bit spin things forward to next week, North Dakota State, and then into CAA play, against those teams, you're not going to be able to start slow like this and get away with it a lot of the time. No, not at all. Not like you're playing a Townsend or just Cornell or even a Rhode Island. And we saw Rhode Island, when they got to a slow start, what happened? Right. They they leave them in the game long enough that Rhode Island's able to make enough plays to win it at the end. This Blue Hens team has done, and it's what haunts them eventually, but I would love to see, especially games going forward on their first drive, bam, go score real quick, Mm -hmm. um, and then being able to just kick things off the right way, get energized, but it seems like they like reading their opponents. They're like going out there, seeing what's being offered to them, make adjustments on the sideline, and then go out there and play instead of playing at the first whistle. Right. In the first couple of series, less apt to take chances, I think. The first drive, it's you know a couple of runs and then a third down pass and complete. You're off to the field on to the sideline. And we saw a lot of that against Rhode Island where it was like, okay, we're back up on our own goal line. Can I Kane maybe gets a six or seven on two carries and then it's a third down pass dropped by somebody over the middle. And you have to go off the field because you're kicking from your own 25-yard line. One thing that I did like today, I think it was their second drive back on the... Delaware 25-yard line. They ran a play-action pass to Joe Walker. It was incomplete, but they came out second drive of the game, and they took a shot. They, you know, It was a play-action. He's either going to throw the ball deep to Joe Walker or check it down, and it, you know, it's an easy read. And Walker you know, had to step on his guy. They just couldn't connect it. But I do like that approach of, okay, 
maybe we feel them out that first drive. Let's take a shot and see how they react and put them on the defensive a little bit, especially when you have a guy like Joe Walker who, in more often than not, will be able to get separation down the field. And you have a quarterback now in Pat Kehoe who we've seen is pretty good with the deep ball. I mean, he's not perfect. He did miss a couple throws today. He's less than 50% through the air today. But he has laid it out there pretty nicely for these guys when they take those shots. So I did like to see that early in the game. It just didn't work out. And then they kind of fall into that lull again until they finally got things going. Yeah, it's hard to overthrow Joe Walker, but <laughs> Kehoe managed to do it. But yeah, like you said, especially when you have a player like Joe Walker who's able to get past defenders, be aggressive. Go for those big plays. Take a shot at the defense, make them go on their heels, and then take a Kanai Kane, run up the middle, maybe bounce it to the outside. And I like that they mix it up, especially with the wildcat formations that they did bring out, especially with Walker at quarterback. I thought that was interesting, and I thought that's another entire new playbook right there in, what, in terms of coaches' imaginations and what they can do. That's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that's something that we could see a little bit more often moving forward? We didn't see any... Joe Walker carries against Lafayette. We saw it once against Rhode Island, and he fumbled the ball because the snap was off a little bit, and they lost eight or nine yards. Today, we saw it late in the game. Walker just has one carry himself for six yards, but Andre Robinson got in in that package, the Penn State transfer, and he had two carries for 16 yards, so it got him two first downs before they went away from that package. And it was kind of an interesting look, right? So you have Walker and shotgun. Andre Robinson, one running back behind him. You have Kareem Williams, who is back from the dead. He's to yeah. Walker's right. And then I think it was Dejon Lee to, to his left, or maybe it even Corey Spruill. Corey Spruill. Okay, so you get all three of these backup running backs who never get to play, but they're all talented with Joe Walker. And it worked a couple of times. This is a long question, but do you think that's something that we'll see a little bit more in the future? And is there ways to make that type of package with Joe Walker a really effective piece of this offense that we haven't necessarily yet seen this year? I mean, my eyes lit up. I was intrigued. I was like, yes, this is what we need. Um, I would love to see it on the goal line, especially in goal line situations, either with can I It's a lot to account for. Exactly. For the defenses, do they handle to the outside? Do we go draw up the middle? Um, What could it be? It could be a Joe Walker, say, tight end, go out for a quick play-action pass. There's endless possibilities, and I would like to see it going forward more. And I did think, oh, this is going to be a once-in-a-blue-moon thing. They did it one time. Okay, but then they did it a couple more times throughout the game. And especially with Robinson back there, he had some good carries as well. So this team with these running backs, especially their depth, it works. Joe Walker, the big gay. Six catches, 154 receiving yards. He's the first Blue Hens receiver above 100 receiving yards in a game since 2014 when Michael Johnson had 117 yards against Villanova. Let's talk defense. The Blue Hens hold Cornell to 232 total yards and just 10 points. The lone touchdown of the afternoon for the Big Red comes in garbage time with just a couple minutes left in the fourth quarter and the Blue Hens playing their second team defense. So effectively, they held Cornell to one score, which was a field goal on their first drive. After that, there was not much to be found for the Big Red offense. And it's another dominant performance for the Blue Hens defense. That was also a slow start. In terms of talking about their offense, this defense sure. got off to a slow start. Sure. Letting Cornell drive the field, um, getting that field goal. They took their time. They were able to move the chains, take a lot of time out of the clock. And Yeah, it's Cornell had the possession for battle for the most of the first half. A long time. And... 
then they made the adjustments and they came back firing. We saw Cornell not getting back in Blue Hens territory for the longest time until the end of the game when they then scored that touchdown against the Delaware second, second team. team. But this team, this defense, I mean, it's scary. We, Me and Doug were talking about it. We were like, if this Blue Hens offense scores points and gets ahead, takes pressure off that defense, able to sustain drives, control possession, you don't want to give that defense rest. That that defense with rest on the sidelines, that's scary. Especially when you have Troy Reader, Colby Reader, I mean, even though he didn't play today, but those Reader brothers are dangerous. Ray Jones, I said his name a ton of times today. He was just everywhere, especially towards the outside, and they did a great job of containing to the outside. They weren't letting big plays to the outside. And then Cam Kitchen in the middle, I mean, it they're just stuffing runs. But the pass still worries me a little bit. Okay. Just... But they did better today than what they did at Rhode Island and Lafayette. The running game for Cornell, just 91 yards on the ground, 2.6 yards per carry. Their leading rusher had eight carries for 31 yards. That's Harold Coles. The Big Red rotated a few different guys at quarterback. Dalton Banks took most of the snaps, but to me, I couldn't really figure out a rhyme or reason to the situations where Richie Kenny, number 11, and Austin Holmes, number 12, came into the game. That's something that, you know, the the Cornell media will definitely ask about and follow for their head coach. Not as important for our purposes. But what did you see from the Cornell passing attack in this one, and particularly that carousel of the three different guys? Didn't understand it. Not at all. Was confused the entire time, especially calling it. I'm like, all right, Dalton Banks coming out of the game. Uh, Kenny Rich. <laughs> oh, that's that's Kenny out there. Um, no, that's Austin Holmes. Uh, hold on. Uh, Cantonese is. Wait, no, what? Yeah, for, I didn't mention his name. Yeah. He has two it's passing like, attempts in this one. It's like just Cantonese. Like, oh my god, it's, <laughs> what's happening out here? And I think it was something maybe with Banks just. Maybe there's some injury problems with him with that, the reason for the carousel, but the passing attack in general, I think it's, there was one big pass towards the end of the game um, in the third quarter, starters were still out there, and it was to John Fitzgerald, the tight end, and I think it got behind um, one of the cornerbacks, I forget who, but it's just plays like those to where they're able to get open passes in the middle, that's what scares me with this defense, I think there are some holes there, but this passing attack, obviously not the couldn't most Couldn't take feared. advantage of anything exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, throughout the game, they couldn't really sustain drives. Um, and I don't know if if it's necessarily the quarterback's fault because of the coaching, just switching them around so right. much. Right, how do you get into a rhythm like that? Yeah, but very interesting. Definitely. That's something that I talked to a couple of people about on the sidelines, and nobody really quite had a grasp on what the deal was with that situation. But the Blue Hens weather it. And you mentioned a few moments ago, Ray Jones, he has seven tackles, which is good for third on the team. Malcolm Brown actually leads the team with 11. Colby, or excuse me, Troy Reader, second place with eight tackles. He also combined with Drew Nichols for a sack late in the game, came up with the fourth down stop. He had another phenomenal game. Malcolm Brown, Ray Jones, the safeties in their new role, or excuse me, Brown, the safety in his new role. Jones, the linebacker in his new role. Both guys playing extraordinarily well. I think Ray Jones was all over the place. I was watching Troy Reader closely, and he was, if he didn't get there first, he was the second or third guy that really finished off a lot of the tackles for the Blue Hens defense. I mean, the, that, that core, we talk about it a lot. 
and they took a little bit of heat after that Rhode Island loss, but that's still as good a core as you'll probably see from a CAA defense. Reader Brothers, Jones, Bell, could be the greatest set of linebackers we've had at this school in history. I mean, those four... Troy Reader is really good. And Colby is could be even better, depending on the rest right. of his career. Again, Colby Reader did not play today. He had a back injury in preseason camp that flared up earlier this week, so they decided to hold him out. Armin Ware and Drew Nichols combined to take most of his snaps. So no Colby Reader today. He did play in the first two games of the season. But what I liked from this defense and this core, they they game tackle. They find the ball, mm-hmm. and they just go for it. And you'll see six guys on top of the running back. They It's a, it's a solid wall. And for Ray Jones especially due to his athletic ability, his size, his frame, his speed. I saw him at corner at some points. Yeah. Protecting the slot wide receiver and just guarding him one-on-one. And I think that's just another defensive scheme that we could see, especially with him playing sort of like a nickel out there, bringing in another linebacker instead. Well, that's the the interesting thing with playing him at bandit outside linebacker is that when they're in their base defense, he still is not quite in the box, or right? he's still a little bit outside. He's guarding off the slot, whether that be a tight end or a wide receiver. But then when they go to their nickel package now, it's the same personnel. So it, it, it gets a little confusing. It, it looks like the same guys on the field, because it is, but now Ray Jones is playing further out in the slot, especially if they're in man coverage. He's now that fifth defensive back, if you will. So in a sense, it's positionless in that you just use him in different areas of the field and you call him an outside linebacker now because a lot of the times he's closer to the line of scrimmage than he was as a safety a couple of years, you know, his first few years here. But in their substitution package, quote unquote, nobody has to change. And that that allows them to really play cohesively. They bring Colby Reader, or in this case today, Armin Ware down to the line of scrimmage to be their fourth guy rushing the quarterback. Bell and Reader are in the middle dropping into coverage, and then you see Ray Jones float out there as that fifth DB. And I really love the role for him because he gets up close to the line of scrimmage on first and second down to make plays in the running game. And then in the passing game on second and third downs and longs, he's still back out there like he would be as a safety. Plus you get to add in Malcolm Brown now moving to safety and his impact, which is enabled by moving Ray Jones to linebacker. And Tenny Adewusi coming in and playing quarterback for Malcolm Brown and his impact there. So I think it's done a lot to strengthen the back half of the Blue Hens defense, which still, like you said, maybe has some question marks, particularly on the seams over the middle, and maybe with Nigel Hill a little bit. He's not—he's probably the weakest link at this point, in my opinion, but he's still not that weak, and it's still a really, really good defense when everything's clicking. Especially to good safeties over the top. Right, we Malcolm haven't even Brown. talked about Nasir Adderley, the Nasir best Adderley. guy on this team <laughs> yeah. probably. Didn't um, have a great game today, but he's still a ball hawk back there that you have to think impact every game that he's in. There's a reason why the other teams aren't throwing it deep because Nasir Adderley's back there in great coverage or close enough that you're fearing he's going to make a play. I think when he has a quiet game, that proves <laughs> how good he is. I mean, teams won't test it. Teams won't necessarily throw, again, a deep ball, especially with him back there, just the threat of him. I mean, it it proves the depth, and as you said, just Ray Jones, his versatility. It gives this team so many different options in bringing out different players, and you'll see them rotate occasionally throughout the game, 
Right. And especially just, the defensive line will rotate a yeah, lot. Yeah, exactly. And that will help the Blue Hens so deep into the season, especially letting all these guys gain so much experience going in and out. Um, but Adderley, like when he has an impact, you'll see it. And today he had an impact. It might the stats might not show it, but their Cornell's game plan did. Definitely. The defense doesn't come up with the big turnover or a touchdown or anything like that, but three sacks, and they hold Cornell to three points with the first-team defense and give up one more touchdown right toward the end of the game. So now the Blue Hens, 2-1 and one on the season, kind of right back to the middle of the pack with the CAA, but it's the biggest test on the way. Next week, they go out to Fargo, North Dakota to face the number one ranked North Dakota State Bison, a team that has won six of the last seven national championships at this level. I want to go to the optimistic side first because this was a big Blue Hens win and it follows up another big Blue Hens win last week. The optimistic side. The impact of a Blue Hens win against North Dakota, I think, one, erases the detriment or the you know, whatever holds them back from that Rhode Island game. It erases that, and it puts them in a position to control their own fate as far as the playoff goes. If they pull off what would be the upset of the year in the FCS against North Dakota State, Delaware won't be ranked after this game. And they would, again, it's facing the number one team in the nation. What to you, Nick, That that's my take. What to you is the impact of a potential upset win by the Blue Hens against North Dakota? I mean, I completely agree. It, Rhode Island who? Like, nobody would know that we were lost. Um, everybody would just be talking about North Dakota State going down and Delaware sitting pretty in the CAA. I mean, for being optimistic going forward, it's these guys are hungry and they want to take down somebody who's sitting at the top, who's playing at the highest level possible. These guys will want especially after losing Rhode Island, Kehoe with his confidence. I think this defense also wants to make a statement in saying, bring whatever offense you have, we'll be able to stop it. And that's being optimistic, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure you want to see the other side of the coin. Yeah, the pessimistic side to me is this is a long shot. And <laughs> the other team on the other side of the ball is really good. And this Delaware team is not yet quite to that level they lost to Rhode Island, which proves you know anybody can win any given week, but they also you know can lose to any team, and they haven't beaten anybody great since then. They beat two teams that stink, frankly, in Lafayette and Cornell since then, so we don't really know how good this Delaware team is yet, and it's the number one team in the nation who has won six of the last seven, and the only time they went down is when James Madison won a national championship, and we know how James Madison just scored 70-something points against Robert Morris a couple nights ago. So that's the pessimistic side is that let's hope not to lose by 30 points in this one, that yeah. the other team's really good on the other side of the ball. And let's, we and we don't know what this Delaware team really is yet. Let's make it respectable, at least. <laughs> um, completely just going in. If you make it competitive, it's a win, I would consider it. If you make it like what UConn and Rhode Island did today, if you make it like a high-scoring close game, that would be great. Um, but... Again, it's North Dakota State. Um, it will be a tough matchup going forward um, next week when you see them play. And you don't know what Blue Hens are going to get. You don't know if it's going to be the ones that show up at Rhode Island because 
of just the game jitters um or you're gonna see the dominance one like you're gonna see kehoe go out there confidently you're gonna see this defense go out there confidently either way it's gonna be a tough game and like you said i do think north dakota state will (laughs) win this one um but yeah well, that was an excellent segue there, Nick, to our next point of discussion, which is this Rhode Island Rams team that defeated Delaware in week one, but has since then really put the CIA on notice for picking them 12th in the preseason poll. After defeating Delaware, who came into the season ranked number 15 nationally, Rhode Island defeated Albany in week two to go 2-0 and in conference play to begin the season. And then this afternoon... They hung very tight to UConn, who is in the FBS, not the best FBS team, but a team above this level of play. Anytime you can hang tough or beat an FBS team, it's a big deal. They came up just short, 56-49. to They put 49 points on UConn. Jawan Lawson, their quarterback, looks like maybe the best quarterback in this conference. It's still early, obviously, but through three games, it'd be tough to pick anybody else as CAA Player of the Year. How, or I guess, what's the impact of Rhode Island looking now like a CAA contender on the Blue Hens? I mean, you have to, they were overlooked by the coaches poll. Just, they were overlooked by their opponents. They were overlooked by UD. This team, Jawan Lawson, is for real. He can be able to move out of the pocket, scramble, throw the deep ball, run. He is having an incredible season. And if he keeps it going for this Rhode Island team, like you said, Brandon, contenders, especially in the CAA conference. I mean, come playoff time, if Rhode Island is still in it, that's a dangerous team to play. And what does it do for those who are looking at Delaware's resume when they're looking at their body of work for the playoffs at the end of the season You can only imagine that the better that Rhode Island plays and finishes this year, the higher, or I guess the better that loss looks in week one, or it doesn't look as bad, you know, in week one that you lost to this team if they end up looking like a playoff team. Is that the way that that you see it? It will make people go, oh yeah, that, that makes sense why UD struggled against that team. Just because it's the first game doesn't mean that team isn't that good, like, or as good as it will be. I mean, just... That coach's poll really overlooked this team as they've come out defensively, special teams, offense, and for Delaware fans to look at it, we didn't lose to a crappy Rhode Island team. We lost to a contender Rhode Island team, and especially across the CAA, other people I think will look at that way. And I will say, in defense of the voters on the coach's poll, this is a program and a team that hasn't had a winning season since 2001. And last year had three wins on the season. They're already two-thirds of the way there. So while, yes, it now looks in hindsight like they were overlooked, I don't blame the voters. I mean, they they looked at the body of work and said, this team hasn't been good since 2001. I don't have any confidence in them. I'm going to go with the teams that made the playoffs last year. But now Rhode Island and the Rams' offense in particular has really taken the opportunity to prove a lot of people wrong. A lot of season left to play, but... You know, two and one, two conference wins already. That puts them at the top of the conference. Also, another interesting finish from this afternoon. Again, earlier in the early in the season, so these games, while they count as much as 
any other game this season. We don't quite know what the playoff implications of each will be yet. But a game that seems to tick on your radar, Villanova lost to Towson. And Villanova was ranked as one of the better teams in this conference to enter, entering the season. They defeated Temple earlier in week one to begin their year. But now they lose to Towson, who was, again, another one of those teams. I think they were ranked 10th or 11th in the CAA preseason poll. They're bad the last couple of years since I've been here. They defeat Villanova. So that's a tough loss for the Wildcats to stomach early in the season, similar to the way that Delaware kind of comes out with that big hit to their resume at the beginning of the year. Again, you know, last year at this point, Villanova looked great. Week four, they lost their quarterback and their starting safety, and they had five wins and weren't even thought about for the playoffs. But if things shake out the way that we think they will, this could come back and be a game that, you know, could help levy between Delaware and Villanova that we'll be talking about. Well, which is worse, losing to Towson or losing to Rhode Island? College sports at its best. You never know what you're going to get, especially with Towson coming up with the upset. I mean, going at the end when it comes for the playoff push. Rhode Island, who was was once at the top of the CAA, or Towson, who nobody really knew about. But same with Rhode Island. But I think going forward, Rhode Island is going to be much dangerous than a Towson team. And that's a tough loss for Villanova, but it's it's going to be interesting to see how everything plays out. And here's one more quick one for you. New Hampshire picked to finish second in the CAA preseason poll. They're likely going to start the season 0-3, currently trailing 38-14 to as we tape this Saturday evening. They're at Colorado, so Colorado will likely defeat them tonight, and that will push the Wildcats to 0-3. They lost week one to Maine in a big upset. Trevor Knight, their quarterback, who was the CAA preseason player of the year, was injured in that game. So that's a team that's taken a pretty big hit to start the year if they start 0-3 overall and 0-1 in conference play. I mean, that's tough, especially losing. So that's, a, that's a tough hill to climb out of. It's, it's not going to be easy. And playing Colorado at Boulder, that's not an easy opponent either. Right. Um, right, that's the one that you schedule as a loss yeah. coming into the season, but you thought weeks one and two we were going to handle our it, business. You'd be two and one. So we'd be two and one with an FBS loss and we'd be fine. And and last year they, they defeated their FBS opponent. That's part of the reason why they got in over Delaware. That? It was, I believe, Georgia Southern. So not a good FBS opponent, yeah. okay. but an FBS opponent. Which is true, not to take that away from them, but 0-3, um, that... But losing your preseason MVP as selected by the coaches, I mean, it's tough. New Hampshire will have to climb a battle, but it just shows that no matter what you think, things can change dramatically. Just like Rhode Island being at the top now, New Hampshire being at the bottom, who were selected number two, right? Yeah. I mean, it only looks good for Delaware from here on out. And this could be the year that the Wildcats' 14-year playoff streak comes to an end. And the Blue Hens hoping to end their playoff drought, which began seven years ago in, after the 2010 season. Anything else on this Cornell win for the Hens? 27-10, Joe Walker the big day, another big day for Pat Kehoe as well. No, not pretty much. I'm, I'm pretty sure Coach Rocco has to be happy <laughs> about these wins. But um, definitely looking forward to seeing them at North Dakota State and see if they can make it a game. So it's North Dakota State next weekend. Jake Lampert and I will be on the call beginning at 1.45 p.m. from Fargo, North Dakota. 
on 91.3 WVUD. Then it's Delaware's open date, so a chance to reset before conference play comes back into swing with the Blue Hens traveling to Richmond on October 6th. We'll have coverage of that game at 2.45 p.m. on 91.3 WVUD as well. Thank you, Nick, for joining me on the Delaware Football Roundup. Thanks for having me. Thank you.